Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we will be. And just want to say welcome to everybody. I want to uh, take care of something real quick out front. Uh, so we had mentioned over the last couple weeks that uh, we would be planning a Holy Land trip for 2024. And obviously with everything going on right now, uh, we've put all that on hold. And we will be in touch about that trip. And uh, you should have received some information through email about that as well. Uh, and in the meantime... Uh, it's uh, certainly appropriate this morning for us to be reminded of two things. Uh, one, uh, we, it's, a, it's a sober reminder to just remember to pray for Israel, uh, to pray for what's going on right now. You know, as Christians, uh, we certainly understand that there's very good reason for uh, Israel to exist and for Israel to remain a state. And so it is important for us to pray for the situation right now going on uh, across the world. And that's complicated, and there's a lot of things to get into there. And we recognize that there are families and there are children who are uh, living in areas that where terrorists abide. And uh, we certainly pray for them. But we also, uh, it's important in these days that we make it clear that we... Uh, stand uh, against terrorism, that we stand with Israel, and we pray that those terrorists will be dealt with, dealt with quickly, justice will reign, and justice will be served. And there's also a reminder, that's one reminder to pray, and then also to remember that any time things like this happened, happen, it's a reminder that we do live in the last days, that we do live uh, in, uh, there's, there's no other generation that's ever been closer to the second coming of Christ than us. Just think about that. And any time things like this happen, it's important for us to remember to pray, but also to live ready. To live ready for the return of Christ. Um, but we certainly need to pray for our world this morning. Well, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, as you turn there, uh, you know, not long ago, uh, someone uh, invited me to lunch and recommended a place called Gator's Deli on Cassett Avenue. And I think my comment after lunch was, man, I've driven by this place a bazillion times and I've never stopped here to eat. That was actually really, really good. That's a really great place. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever driven past a place or overlooked a place? Maybe it was a hole-in-the-wall restaurant that you'd driven past a million times and you finally stopped there and you're like, man, I can't believe that I've overlooked that. That was really, really good. Or maybe it's a movie. Somehow you missed a movie along the way and you finally sit down and watch it. You maybe heard other people talk about it. You're like, why did I wait so long to watch that movie? That was really good. Last week we were hanging out with the band that led Worship for Renew. And the conversation came up, like, what are your favorite movies? I was asked that, all right? So, so I don't know what my favorite movie is, but in the conversation, I started listing out a few there. And uh, I said the name of a movie called The Count of Monte Cristo. Have you ever seen The Count of Monte Cristo? Any of you, all right? Some of you have, right? The others of you, go see that movie. It's a great movie. It's been out for like 20 years. I told these guys, I said, you call yourself movie connoisseurs, and you haven't seen The Count of Monte Cristo? I was a little offended, right? That's a great movie, right? Um, but it's even a movie that... I'd heard about, but I watched and was really, really, really good. Man, why did it wait? Why did I wait so long to watch that? All right, in life, here's my point. There's some really great places. There are some really great things. There are some really great stories that maybe at first glance don't seem all that special. But when you stop and pay closer attention to those things, you realize, man, I've overlooked something that's really great. I've I've moved past something that is actually really, really awesome. Well, this next stop in the story that we're tracking with in the life of David in this series is kind of like that in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You find one of the most overlooked, one of the most underrated stories in the entire Bible. Now, here's what's different for our church. A couple years ago, I actually 
We spent a morning talking about this story, all right, in a series called The Gospel Thread. But I, I decided instead of just saying, hey, go back and listen to that sermon, I dove right back into the passage this week. This is a brand new sermon, and it really helped me as I dove back into what is an overlooked story in God's Word. I, my, my heart just swelled up more with gratitude for the awesomeness of the gospel that is depicted very clearly through this small overlooked story. So stand with your Bibles open. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Read along with me. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity to come together and to get in your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would help us in a fresh way, leave here in just even more awe, deeper gratitude, and marvel even more at the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would use this story, Lord, to help us to see more clearly what happened on the cross, what the empty tomb means. Lord, I pray that all of us will leave here with a greater appreciation for what you've done for us, for the extravagant grace and love that you've shown us in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help that happen as we sit under the teaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is, we've been tracking with the life of David, and this is actually a really strong point in the reign of King David. It's a time of triumph, all right? All the neighboring enemies of Israel at this point are either conquered or at bay, and the nation is finally experiencing some peace, finally experiencing some rest and security with King David on the throne. And right here at the height of his royal glory, let's listen to what David says. What does he ask? David asks the question, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now let's stop there. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now that part of that question of that point in those days would not have surprised anyone. It was customary in those days for new kings who take over the throne and who are going to build a new dynasty, a new family, a new royal family. It it wasn't uncommon for them to perform a whole-scale massacre of the previous dynasty's family of everybody related and connected to the previous king. Why would they do that? To remove any threat to the throne. So everyone expected to hear things like that. But it's how David finishes that question that would have shocked everybody. Instead of, is there anyone left on the, in the house of Saul to kill? What does he say? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? All right, David is a different kind of king. All right, and his story continues to... Give us glimpses and shadows of a greater king, King Jesus, who did what? Left his throne, stepped out of heaven 2,000 years ago, stepped into this world, not to kill sinful enemies of God like you and like me, but to show us kindness. 
So this morning, I want us to notice three things that are true about King David, that are true about his search and rescue mission right here, that are also true about the greater king, King Jesus, and about the greater search and rescue mission that is still actively in progress, even this morning, in this world, as he's seeking to save the lost. All right? He's seeking to save the lost. So, uh, number one this morning, here's what we find. That this is a king who pursues. We notice that this is a king who pursues, right? David calls in this guy Ziba. He was one of Saul's top servants, which is uh, grace being shown right here, right? So he could have easily killed somebody like Ziba, who was a, uh, a partner of Saul, who was taught Saul's top servants, but he doesn't do that. And so Ziba's alive, and he's going to show some more kindness as well. He says, is there anybody else that I can show kindness to? And Ziba says, yeah, there's one remaining grandson of Saul, uh, his the son of Jonathan, and his name is Mephibosheth. Now, let's see how many times I can mess that name up this morning. Mephibosheth. Try to say that seven times fast, all right? Now, notice that there's something about Mephibosheth that the author wants us to know about him. He says it several times. It even ends with this description. It says he's crippled in his feet. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, actually tells us how that happens, all right? How that happens. So years before, this is going on right here in chapter 9, uh, Mephibosheth was five years old. News, he, he's living in the palace as a grandson of the, of, of the king, King Saul. And news comes back from Jezreel that King Saul and Jonathan have died in a battle, a battle they shouldn't have ever been in before. News gets back to the palace, and a siren goes off, and everybody panics because they're expecting there to immediately be a slaughter of everybody connected to King Saul as they know a new king's coming to the throne. So word gets back to the palace, and everybody exits, runs out of the palace, and a nanny picks up Mephibosheth, who's five at the time, runs out and drops him in that chaos, and he, his feet are mangled, and they never heal right. So the nanny drops him, all right? Her name in Hebrew means unemployed, right? You're fired. <laughs> Probably had problems getting a job after that one. We know that it took a number of years for David to officially settle in as king. So uh, for the next 10 or 15 years, this five-year-old Mephibosheth, he, he grows up a little bit. And for the next 10 or 15 years, he really is on the run. He, he's hiding from King David. When we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, he's a young man, as we'll see later on. He has a son, so he has a family. He's uh, living and hiding out in the house of um, a man named Makir at a place called Lodabar. Lodabar actually means without pasture. I mean, this is out in the middle of nowhere. This is, he's removed himself as far as he can from King David. It's like Nowhereville. He's a, he's a nobody living in no man's land, literally. He's an exile in this land. Why is he doing this? Why is he taking such drastic measures to get away from King David? Because he knows who he is. He knows, he, he knows he's a son of the late son, uh, the late heir apparent son of the King Jonathan. He's a, he's a grandson of King Saul. Right? And so he understands if there's a new king on the throne, somebody like him, he's a dead man walking. He doesn't stand a chance. Now I want you to see Mephibosheth in your mind for a moment. I want you to see Mephibosheth in your mind, a young man crippled in his feet, hiding, fearing for his life for all these years, living in a place called Lodobar. He's crippled, he's scared, he's hiding. He's hopeless, he's poor, and here's the question I want to ask you. If David in this whole story, in, in this passage right here, is meant to point us, he's, he's a picture of Jesus in this story, guess who we are? We're Mephibosheth. We're Mephibosheth. He's a picture of us before a holy God, before the king sought us out and found us. Crippled, scared, hiding, hopeless, 
spiritually poor, right? Now you say this morning, well, speak for yourself. I'm not crippled. I mean, I don't need to, I know I'm here, you know, for whatever reason you're here and you know, you church people, I understand you might need a crutch, spiritual crutch to get you through life, to help you cope with some of the mysteries of life and some of the, the hard times in life. And that's okay for you. I don't have a problem. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. I don't have a problem with you, you, you Christian folks needing a crutch to lean on to get through life. And you know what? I would actually say, hey, the Bible kind of agrees with you that the Bible teaches that it's not that we need a crutch to get through life. The Bible would argue that we need a whole hospital. So you can make yourself feel good by comparing yourself with other people, comparing your life with other people's behavior, comparing your morality with other people's morality. And that can make us feel a sense that in in a sense, good and okay. But here's the truth that Bible, the Bible teaches This is very key to understanding the message of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that a holy God isn't going to judge us as to how we can compare to other people and their morality. God's going to judge us compared to how we measure up to his holy standard and you start walking through let's just walk through the ten commandments for a minute we're not going to make it past one and we're going to realize very very quickly we've broken that one and every other one multiple times which means all of us have fallen short of the glory of god it's not just that we're crippled in sin we're actually infected with the terminal disease of sin that runs through our veins that was inherited by our foremother and forefather adam and eve and like mephibosheth we too crippled in sin We try to hide in our sin. We try to manage and fix our sin like Adam and Eve try to do. Like Mephibosheth before Christ. We're scared in our sin. Right? Might be unspoken fears. But you you don't know Christ. If you don't have a, a relationship with God that's restored through Christ Jesus. All of us have been there before Christ. We remember those unspoken fears. Those deep fears that gripped our hearts. Fears lying in bed at night thinking about what will happen to me after I die. Fears about how I am measuring up, how my morality will fare in the, in the end of my life and where I'll spend eternity. Before Christ, we're also like Mephibosheth in that we're poor, spiritually poor. You know, you may not look poor when you look at your bank account, but before we come to Christ, all of us are poor in soul. All of us are poor in spirit. We are like Mephibosheth. Well, what's David, this king, going to do with this crippled, scared, hiding, hopeless, poor enemy of the king? In verse 5, it says, Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir. Now, I want you to use your sanctified imagination this morning because that's a short verse. Those are a few words, but there's a lot of drama packed into those verses. We can only imagine, right? So David sends out, probably scholars believe, in ancient Near Eastern fashion, a caravan of couriers to travel across the desert to get to this no man's land called Lodabar, looking for the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth. We can only imagine what that scene would have looked like as they're starting to peek over the wall in Lodabar, wondering what in the world is all that dust about? What in the world are all those horses about? What in the world are all those chariots about? Oh my goodness, this is a royal caravan. Why in the world are they coming to Lodabar? And they pull up the Lodabar and one of those king's couriers gets off of his horse and walks into that town and says, Hey, I'm looking for Mephibosheth. And someone reluctantly points down to the house of Machir and he walks down to the house of Machir, knocks on the door. Hey, does Mephibosheth live here? He does. Now, can you imagine what Mephibosheth is feeling like right here? Heart probably beating fast, probably swallows hard. He begins to realize time's up. 
He begins to realize the only reason the new king will want to sing a rebel on the run like me is to kill me. Ever since I was five, I've lived in fear of this day coming. And here it is. My time's up. I'm done. So he kisses his family goodbye. He shuffles out on his crippled feet. Outside the city, he loads up for what will be a long ride across the wilderness to Jerusalem. And in verse 6, it says they pulled up to the palace. He walks into the presence of King David. And it says, Mephibosheth came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. David calls him by name, and Mephibosheth says immediately, Behold, I'm your servant. This falls on his face. He's throwing himself on the mercy of King David. He's saying, basically, in essence, in this move, in this action, Here I am, please don't kill me. Because that's exactly what he expects. He expects for a sword to come down on his neck. And what stuns him is what David says next. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness. Mephibosheth lifts his eyes eyes and sees David and realizes something that changes his life forever. That that king has not pursued him to harm him or to kill him, but to show him kindness. And a big reason why we're parking in this passage today, once again in this story, is because it is very, very possible that there are some of you who are Mephibosheths who are hiding in your Lodabar this morning, right here in this room. And this is a story that has a lot of rich gospel truth all over this story. But here's something that I want to remind us about this morning. Here's a gospel truth I want to remind you about this morning. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. It doesn't matter how far you've run. It doesn't matter what your Lodabar looks like. There is a king who pursues hopeless, helpless, rebels of the king, spiritually poor sinners like you. And who will show you saving grace and kindness if you'll stop running and repent of your sin and turn to Him. If you could could realize this morning that you're hiding and running from a King who loves you. Who comes to seek and save the lost. Who comes not to take life, but comes to give life. Think about all that time Mephibosheth spent in hiding, avoiding the king, hiding in fear. Was it not all based on assumption and not truth? It was all based on assumption and not fact. The truth is, is that King David loved Mephibosheth long before Mephibosheth loved King David. Before Mephibosheth in humility ever stepped into a relationship with this king, David had set his heart on Mephibosheth. Pursuing him to save him. Pursuing him to give him life. Pursuing him to shell out extravagant grace and mercy and loving kindness over his life. He had plans to restore Mephibosheth. That's the king that he was running from. And if you are running from God, if you are hiding in your sin, if you're avoiding King Jesus this morning, you're running from a king who pursues and loves and sets his heart on sinners like you. Not to take life from you, but to give life to you. Not to kill you, but to show you mercy and extravagant kindness and to rescue you from the penalty of sin. If you will stop running. You're running from a king who loves and saves and rescues sinners like you. I want to make sure that's very clear this morning. There is a king and his name is Jesus and he pursues sinners like you. 
And if you know him, if you do know him this morning, and you've already turned to him and repented of your sins and thrown yourself in his mercy and received new life that he gives and are a recipient of his grace, this is a worship-inducing reminder that this is the kind of king that pursued you, that set his heart on you, who pursued you and raised you up to new life and loved you before you loved him. We serve a king who pursued us. Number two, we serve a king who keeps his promises. You know, when you study God's word, asking the question why is a really good question to ask. So at this point in the passage, we have to ask why. Why is David doing this? Did he just wake up on the right side of the bed this morning, that morning and say, you know what, I feel, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I feel like showing some kindness to somebody today. Is that what's going on? Is it just some random act of kindness? Well, look at verse 1. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness right there is really, really important in this passage. It's the Hebrew word kesed or hesed. It looks like hesed, but it's pronounced kesed. It's a very rich word. It refers to kindness, it refers to covenant loyalty, it refers to unconditional steadfast love and mercy. Some have translated it loving kindness to kind of encapsulate all of those things. It's something that's used, it's a word that's used through the Old Testament to refer to the covenantal love of God that he has for his people, God's steadfast love for his people. And it's also used in the Bible to describe kind of the relationship and the love between people who make covenants with one another. Well, that should already be making you think about a covenant that we looked at earlier that was made between David and Jonathan that they made with each other. When David says, for Jonathan's sake, it should take our minds back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. When Jonathan, the son of King Saul who is next in line, the crown prince in Israel, also a loyal friend of David, sets up a meeting with David. Jonathan understands, he's humble, he knows that David is the next anointed king of Israel. So he meets with him in a symbolic act of humility, gives him his royal robe to say, hey, I know that you're the next king of Israel. And I think that Jonathan knew it was going to end badly. I believe that's what fueled that meeting. Here's Here's the royal robe, you're the next king of Israel, I'm recognizing that. David, and I just want to ask you, when you get to the throne and you're crowned as king of Israel, hey, please break the customary practices of our day and be kind to my kids. Be kind to my grandkids. And David agrees. He makes a promise to show kindness. And 15 to 20 years later, here we are, 15 to 20 years have passed since that covenant was made and David hasn't forgotten that promise. If you're David coming in to the blooming, blossoming success of your reign right here, would it not be easy to forget that promise? Would it not be easy to justify maybe not holding up your end of that deal? Would it not be tempting to go, you know what, hey, I, it's been a long time ago. You know, I, I, I wasn't really that smart politically speaking back in those days. I really understand what I was agreeing to. And Jonathan's dead. I don't really, I, I probably do need to remove every threat in this kingdom to my throne. We'd be tempted to do that. You know why? And why would even, you know, in, in our minds, we, we assume that we'd probably be tempted to do that because we're promise breakers. We break promises. How many times have we said, hey, I'm going to call you next week? Hey, I'm going to come by and visit you. We're promise breakers, right? We're we're sinners saved by grace. It's who we are. David is not that kind of king here. He's remembering those promises. 
He's a promise-keeping king. And that's an extremely important truth to grasp right here in this passage. Think about it. He's choosing to leverage his power and his authority and his strength to pour out Kesed on the life of this unworthy candidate. Why is he doing that? Why is he doing this extreme act of grace and kindness? Here's why. Because he promised that he would. He's a promise-keeping king. Now track with me. If this act of mercy is supposed to point us to the greatest act of mercy ever seen in the history of humanity, which is Christ, our king, on the cross, dying in our place, then it would be really healthy and good for us to stop regularly and look at that cross and ask, why is he doing that? Listen, when we talk about the gospel, the what question is important. We need to understand what the gospel is. But it's also important to stop and ask, why? Why would God send His only Son to die on the cross for our sins? Why would God send His only Son to die in the place of His enemies, of rebels of the King? Why would God give His very best to us when we were at our very worst? What motivated such a beautiful story of redemption? Why did He do it? Here's why. Because He's a God who looked at broken people like us and said, you know what, I've made promises to you going back to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 12, all throughout the Old Testament, multiple times in in my word, I've made my people a promise. I've made sinners in this world a promise that I will send a sin-crushing Messiah into this world to save it, and I intend to make good on that promise. And when we look at the cross, we see every messianic prophetic promise finding its yes and amen in the personal work of Jesus Christ. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ at Calvary was not some random act of kindness. God didn't decide just randomly in that moment to step in and try to do something to fix our sin problem. He had made a promise long ago. Yes, on that cross, what you see is an incredible picture of sacrificial love. But underneath that act of sacrificial love is a God who made a promise to you, made a promise to me, and He's making good on that promise at Calvary. Hey, we are a promise break promise-breaking people, but praise God, we serve a promise-keeping king. And that's a really important truth for us to anchor our hearts in. It's a really... Have you stopped? Don't amen this out loud, because I want you to think about it. Have you stopped and really celebrated the truth today that you serve, that you belong to a promise-keeping king? That is a truth that will get you through some really tough times in this world as a believer. That is a truth that will help you live a victorious Christian life. That is a truth that will help fill you with supernatural joy and peace and hope in the middle of this broken and dark world as you celebrate and believe more that the King who promised to save you and make good on that promise and we can look back at the cross and the empty tomb and see that He just did just that is the same King who promises to sustain you through whatever season you're walking through. Is a king that promises to use whatever suffering you're walking through to sanctify you. And one day you're going to be able to look back and see as terrible as that thing is that you're walking through. That somehow God was able to use that for his glory and your sanctification. The same king that saved you. The same king that sustained you. The same king that promises to sanctify you. Is the same king that promises one day to come back. To return. To reverse the curse completely in this world and in our life. He's the same king who said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Is your heart anchored in the truth that you serve a promise keeping king? So he's a king who pursues. He's a king who keeps his promises. 
But notice he doesn't just keep his promises, he exceeds them. Number three, the king provides. See, his provision for Mephibosheth reaches way beyond him, not just throwing the sword down on Mephibosheth's neck. His provision for Mephibosheth, David's provision for him, extends way beyond just sparing Mephibosheth's life. Look at verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I mean, if David, if David would have just let him go, wouldn't that have been enough? If David would have just spared his life, wouldn't that have been amazing news to Mephibosheth? Wouldn't he have been thrilled? Like, I get to live. Like, I'm free. Everything else, like, I'm not really worried. About, I, I've been set free. I don't got to hide anymore. I don't got to live in fear anymore. I don't got to lose sleep at night anymore. But David does much more than that. David says, I'm going to move beyond that. And I'm going to show you extravagant generosity and kindness and grace. Not because you earned it, but for your father's sake. You're getting all your family's land back that you lost. I'm not going to banish you to some corner of the universe. You're going to have a place at my table and you get to live as my son the rest of your days. And you know, it's just too much for Mephibosheth to take in. Right? Look at verse 8. What does he say? Look at verse 8. It says, and he paid homage and he says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog? Such as I. It's going to take a little time for his new identity to settle in. It's going to take a little time. You know why? Because he spent a lot of time in Lodabar. He spent a lot of time in the brokenness of the world. He spent a lot of time in no man's land, feeling like a nobody, living the life of a rebel on the run, just feeling broken and worthless. And it's like David senses that. He senses that, that feeling of insecurity in Mephibosheth. And David steps in. But notice he doesn't just step in and like try to talk him into it. No, Mephibosheth, seriously. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to move beyond, I'm going to move beyond just sparing your life. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to give you some things. And I'm going to bless your life. He doesn't just try to talk him into it. He says, just, just hold on for a second. Let me prove it to you. I want this to settle in, Mephibosheth, that your life has changed. Look at verse 9. Look at what David does. This is, and I believe this is happening right there in the presence of Mephibosheth. And then king, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. David takes action. And this communicates to Mephibosheth, hey, this is for real. From this day forward, Mephibosheth, not only are you going to have back your family's land... You're going to have all these workers who are going to work the land for you. You're getting back all that was lost. 
And three more times in the text that we just read, he reiterates the most awesome reality that is now true for Mephibosheth. He reiterates it in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13, what he's already said. What does he say? Mephibosheth, here it is. You are going to sit forever at my table as my son. Like, wouldn't you have loved to just have been a fly on the wall for that first dinner that Mephibosheth got to go to in the palace? Have you ever been in a place before where you didn't feel like you belonged, right? I've, I've been in a place before where, I, you know, I'm kind of like, man, I don't belong. This is fancy. I don't know if I belong here. I feel like I'm about to get kicked out of here. Let me pretend like I belong here for a minute and enjoy this. Recently, we went to um, Roos Chris Steakhouse to celebrate my mother-in-law's um, birthday. I don't get to go to that place very often. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. But we went. It's kind of a little, a little fancy, right? A little fancy. Any place where the waiter like memorizes the menu, that's that's fancy. Yeah, that's a, it's a fancy place for us. All right. And so we sit down and we're settling in. And one of my kids down at the end of, end of the table is like, he, he leans down. And he says, "Hey, I, I got two forks." <laughs> that shows you about how often we eat at a fancy place like that. But even that night, I was like, man, this is nice. This is kind of a one-and-done thing. that We're not going to eat here every week. Like, we'll enjoy it tonight, and then we'll kind of move on with our regular life. I, I bet that's kind of the way Mephibosheth felt that first night. This is really nice, I, I, but I don't really belong here. But slowly, night after night, he began to realize this isn't just a charity case one-off. Act of kindness by this king. That he forever has a seat that has his name on it at the king's table. And he understands that's where he belongs. And I wonder this morning how many believers are here this morning and it's still sometimes in your life you slip into this place of insecurity in your relationship with God and you ask like Mephibosheth, what is your servant that, I should, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now there's a humble like posture of awe and wonder where you can ask that question in a healthy way. Like, wow, God, this is amazing. You are so awesome. Like, who am I? You're just incredible and, and marvelous. And you show me so much grace and love. And I just don't feel like I deserve it. That's healthy. That's, that's humble. But then there's also an unhelpful, like pitiful, unhealthy, insecure posture that we can take as a Christian where we start feeling like we don't belong in the kingdom of God. Like it's a place we don't belong where the enemy comes up and slithers next to us and reminds us about all the mess in our past. Reminds us of who we used to be. Begins to try to define us once again by our past. I even struggle with that at times. Tries to convince us that we are our past. Some of you will walk into a church like this and you, you, you're saved, but maybe you haven't been saved that long and you walk into a church like ours and you, and you look around and you think, I'm not even sure I belong here. These fine folks, everybody's kind of dressed up. They look like they got their stuff together. I mean, they don't know what I've done. They don't know what I've been through. They don't know what kind of baggage I'm carrying with me. They don't know about the mess in my past. I'm not sure I fit in here. Listen, if you belong to Christ Jesus, the King, oh yes, you do belong here. Because you know who we are? This is who we are. If you look around this room, this is who we are. We're just a bunch of busted up sinners who got lifted up out of our load of bars and seated us at the table of the king and has shown extravagant kindness to us that none of us deserve. And all of us at times will struggle like Mephibosheth, feel, like Mephibosheth feeling unworthy. And in those moments, what you have to do is you have to train yourself and discipline yourself to make sure you're calling those feelings what they are and they're false. They're not from God. 
And in those moments, you need to rest your heart in what Scripture has declared over the life of a believer like you. That you who are once separated from the Father in your sin are now seated forever at the Lord's table in restored fellowship with your Heavenly Father as co-heirs with Christ. Meaning His riches are your riches. Meaning His resources are now your resources. Meaning His position is now your position in the kingdom of God. Meaning His righteousness is your righteousness. You are a son and daughter of God. In Christ Jesus this morning. We are Mephibosheth. All, listen, all that was lost in the fall. Fellowship with God. The favor of God on our life. Strength and vitality of life. All of that's been restored to us and more in Christ Jesus. All that we lost in Adam we've gained more and much more and beyond that in Christ. So in light of these truths, let me ask you a question this morning. First question is for the pre-palace Mephibosheth. You know what I mean by that? The pre-palace Mephibosheth. The person that's still crippled and hiding and running and living in fear in their sin, dead in their sin. You never come to Christ, never bowed your knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Never thrown yourself on the mercy of God. Why? Here's, your, here's the question to you. Why are you hiding in Lodabar? Why are you hiding in Lodabar this morning? There is a king of love. Yes, truth. But a king of love and grace and mercy who pursues hiding spiritually bankrupt sinners like you. Who plenty of people in this room will testify to the truth that once you turn to him, he'll save you and he'll raise you to new life and he'll change your life and you'll never be the same. Second question I want to ask is of those who are post-palace Mephibosheth. You've come to Christ. You've turned to Him. You've trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior. Praise God for that. Praise God that you got a place in the family of God. Praise God that you got a place at that royal table, the king's table. Well, let me ask you this. Are you joyfully and daily dining at that royal table? For some of you... What I want to ask is, are you confidently pulling your chair up to that table of the king where you belong? Others of you, I want to ask this question. Maybe it's a better question for you. Are you showing up for dinner regularly at all? How weird would it be for Mephibosheth, who's been given this great honor, to dine with the king every single evening for the rest of his life, to have this great privilege, to have this great invitation to dine with King David, only for David to look down one evening at the place where Mephibosheth should be sitting and to see an empty chair there. Hey guys, where's Mephibosheth at tonight? Is he not going to join us for dinner? I, I think I heard him say he's meeting some friends down at Taco Bell tonight. Yeah, I think I heard, I think he's shrugging off a night to dine with the king. I think he's shrugging off a royal feast right here to go down and enjoy some, some Dorito shell tacos at Taco Bell. You'd say, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. Well, I want you to think about the great sacrifice that's been made for us to be able to sit at the table of our king every single day. To be able to be in restored fellowship with our Lord. To be able to feast with Him and abide in Him and to enter into His presence and to draw close to Him. How much more ridiculous is it for us who know that that's true for us to neglect for, ne for lesser things that privilege to dine with our king? When's the last time 
When's the last time you stirred yourself to lay hold of that privilege that is yours as a son or a daughter of the king? Here's what I'm trying to say. If we're post-palace Mephibosheths, let's live like it. Let's pull ourselves up to the king's table. Let's hold our heads high, knowing that's where we belong. Knowing that's where we're loved and accepted. Let's have humble hearts full of gratitude. Let's draw near to the king in intimate fellowship with our God who loves us and loves to dine with us. And has paid a great price in order for that to happen. Let's bow our head and close our eyes this morning. This morning we're observing the Lord's Supper. And every time that we gather around the Lord's table, we're, if you think about it, we're gathering as a family faith, faith family, uh, around the table of our King. So I think it's a very appropriate time for us this morning to observe the Lord's Supper right after looking at this passage. The Lord's Supper is literally a representation of us being invited to the King's table. By the way, let me ask you this. Have you received that invitation? and responded to that invitation to the king's table? If you're here this morning and you're, you're lost, you're in Lodabar, and the Holy Spirit is showing you that you're in your sin, that you're dead in your sin, and that you need to be saved, you say, what do I need to do? How, how, what do I need to do? Listen, it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has already done. Turn your eyes with a heart of faith to the cross and believe that what Christ did on the cross counts for you. Believe that Jesus who died on that cross rose from the dead and He's the crucified, risen Savior who pursues sinners like you and is willing to save you if you repent of your sins and turn to Him this morning. You can do that right where you're seated. Receive that invitation of the King to come to His table this morning. If you have received that invitation I want to invite you to rejoice in 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. I want to invite you to rejoice in the truth that you belong at this table. Not because of anything that you've done, but because Jesus made you belong. In just a few moments, we're going to take the bread together as a faith family. It's a symbol of the body of Christ. And as we eat it, we're going to stop and we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, His broken body. And we're going to remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to remember that not only has God spared our life and given us new life, in Christ He has absolutely spoiled us. He has seated us in heavenly places. He's provided more for us in Christ than our ability to understand. So when we eat the bread in just a few moments, we're going to remember our place at the table. And then we're going to take the cup in a few moments and that's symbolic of the blood of Christ that He shed on the cross. And as we drink it in a few moments, we're going to remember the love that Jesus generously poured out for us on that cross in our place. And we're going to remember by His shed blood, we are saved, we are redeemed, and that that blood covers all of our sins. All of it. And because of that sacrifice, we're able to have our seat at the table forever. All by grace.